Matthew chapter number one and verse number one. Matthew chapter one, verse <clears throat> number one. We'll read through the verse, three verses. This is a genealogy of Christ going back and tracking the direct descendants to Christ. And so we'll start with the first verse. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Pharees and Zara of Tamar, and Pharees begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram. So there's some begats there. However, in each one of these names, there is a story and a connection to Jesus Christ. And we have taken the first three verses of that. That runs all the way through verse number 16, where it says, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ. So all the generations for Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away unto Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away unto Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. And so the evangelist breaks that all down, gives to us the genealogy of Christ. And we've read a few verses, especially in the beginning here. I want to talk to you for a few moments here this morning on this subject, breakthrough, breakthrough, a breach or a breakthrough. Amen. I'm thankful that God knows how to break through our situations at times, our own lives at times. Amen. Life is filled with a lot of stuff, and every once in a while, we need a breakthrough. Amen. It's interesting that sometimes if you're not careful, life can become a rut. Sometimes I need to break out of the rut that I'm in and say, God, reveal once again your power and ability and your anointing that breaks me out of where I am so that I can see things differently. Amen. So there needs to be a breach. There needs to be a breakthrough in the midst of that. And so that I am renewed. Amen. The scripture said every single day is an opportunity to sing a new song unto the Lord. You know why? Because God never gets boring. God always has something to add to you every single day. You can't get to the depths of how great God is. As a matter of fact, Paul said, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. You will never drill down to the bottom of how good God is. It doesn't matter how long you're around, how much you study, how much you think you know. You will never get to the bottom of how great God is. He's a sovereign God. I'm a finite individual. I may think I know a lot of stuff, and other people may think they know stuff, but they don't know anything when it comes to the depth and the ability of God to reveal himself. So sometimes in my own little head, my mind, and my mentality and life situations, I get stuck, and I need a breakthrough in my life. So that's what I want to speak to you about this morning, 
is a breakthrough. Lord, we thank you and praise you. Praise God. Thank you for your presence that we feel in the house of God today. Amen. I, I pray for moments like we feel in this place today. Amen. I pray for it. God, let there be a move of your spirit, your anointing. Every service we pray before service with a group in preparation that there is a move of God, an anointing of God, and that you would use us somehow as conduits of exemplifying your glory and your praise. And we thank you that we feel that in the house of God today. We give to you thanks in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing for the reading of the Lord. I've taken these three verses in Matthew chapter 1 purposely because I want to focus on verse number 3 and Judas, which is Judah, and Judah begat Pharisees and Zara of Tamar. And I want to talk to you about that particular story, that scenario, and these names, they do have a, a place in the biblical record. It's, it's kind of ironic because it feels like that it is thrown in there without a whole lot of purpose, and yet there is great, great significance attached to it. Genesis chapter 38, verses 27 through 30, tells us the story about the birth of Pharaohs and Zara. It says, it came to pass in the time of her tra travail, this would have been their mother, that behold, twins were in her womb, and it came to pass when she travailed that one put out his hand, and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, this came out first, and it came to pass as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out, and she said, how hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore, his name was called Pharez. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zara. In Hebrew, it's Zerach. But in the English King James translation, it is Zara. So we'll call him Zara. These two children are born, and the fascinating thing that happens is Perez, his hand comes forth, and or Zara's hand comes forth, and there is an attachment to that. And then there is a breakthrough with Perez, who is born before. And so the midwife sees this, and this is significant enough to her to say, this breach be upon thee, therefore his name was called Perez. It was significant. There was a, a breakthrough in that birth process that was not the way that things typically happened, and so it was significant. These names seem insignificant because they're placed in the middle of the story of Joseph. And so there's a chapter there where it feels like the story of Joseph has been broken apart and this is inserted in it. And, and so it seems insignificant. However, it's not insignificant at all. And even if we just look at their names and not necessarily the significance attached to them, their names alone are important as it has to do with the rest of Scripture. These are twins that are born. 
And they're not typically the names that we associate with the more prominent twins in the Bible. The twins in the Bible that we attach significance to would be Jacob and Esau. Jacob, that wheeling and dealing manipulator who becomes the father of Israel and Esau, the one who stumbles away the birthright or the heir of his father's wealth because of his undisciplined appetite for a bowl of soup, which was a microcosm, not just of soup, but his undisciplined lifestyle. He gave it away because it wasn't important to him. It wasn't significant enough to him. He didn't think that it had much value, and so he was willing to trade that for something that was insignificant. Don't trade away the goodness of God for something that is less. Don't trade away the mercy of God for something that is insignificant, but recognize there is great value and inheritance to God's goodness. I'm not going to fritter it away, give it away for something that is less, that is not as meaningful, but what is meaningful to me today in the house of God is his anointing and his ability, and so I'm going to put promise on it, priority on it, and recognize its value. Esau didn't recognize the value. So these names that are coming up here, they're just names, really. There's not a whole lot that tells us anything about their life. This is probably one of the reasons why they're on the back burner, they're in the back story, because their names are given to us, the significance of their names are given to us, and yet we don't get any life story like Jacob and Esau that take prominence. This occurs after Joseph is sold by his brothers to the Midianites and then sold to uh, Potiphar in Egypt. He becomes a captain of the guard to Pharaoh. And this chapter is in between Joseph being sold and the story continuing in Egypt, there is, there's, there's this breaking in of a story of a larger narrative, and there is a focus on that. Judah was named in this passage of Scripture in this chapter. He was married to a woman, and he had three sons. The three sons were Ur, Onan, and Shelah. He had three sons. He took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he died. And Judah said unto his secondborn, Onan, go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to thy brother. It's very, very common in the ancient world that if there was a widow, it would fall upon the next brother to continue that family heritage and line of descendants. So Ur dies because of his wickedness. Onan is given the responsibility, and he doesn't want to take responsibility. And so there's some interesting stuff that happens in that passage of Scripture, but ultimately God is upset with him, and Onan dies. And so Shelah is a younger son, and he's younger in the sense of that he's not old enough to take on the responsibility of Tamar, and so Judah promises Tamar that when the time is right and Sheila comes of age, that he will take her in, marry her, and continue the descendants of the family line. Well, the story tells us that time 
passes, and Judah has forgotten, and Judah, at the end of the story, recognizes that he was not righteous, so it tells us not only was he forgetful, but he was shirking his duties, much like his son, sons had done, and so uh, he kind of ignores Tamar, and so she is left as a widow living at her parents' house. She remains a widow in her father's house. She has this promise, and it's not coming to pass. And so she does something that's very sneaky, very interesting. She takes off the garments of a widow. She covers herself with a veil and sits in an open place, and it's on the road on the way where they are taking the sheep, and sheep herders pass by. And so she sits in a prominent place of where a harlot would sit, and passerbyers would go by, and it just so happens that Judah, going by, sees this woman. He does not recognize and know that it is Tamar. He takes her in. There is a relation that happens there, and there is a promise that is made by Judah to Tamar. He thinks she is a harlot. He turns into her, and she responds, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? And he said, what pledge shall I give thee? And she said, thy signet, thy bracelets, and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it to her, and he came in unto her, and she conceived by him. He doesn't recognize, Judah does not recognize that he thinks this is a harlot. It's not a harlot. It is his daughter-in-law that he has ignored. She is desperate, desperate enough to actually enact and activate what she is doing. She's very smart, and so she asks for a transaction, and she asks for some evidence. And so he gives to her his seal, cord, and staff, which it's very evident that Judah is not thinking because he gives to her his identity, his bond, and his power. These are not things that you just hand over. And yet in the, the moment and in the moment of weakness, he gives away some things that are very prominent and important. And so she leaves and he leaves. She uh, conceives, the scripture says, and somebody at some point comes to him and tells him that your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot. What's fascinating about this is Judah promised a kid goat for the transaction, and yet she asks some things, some evidence, and he gives her these things. When he sends the goat to the area, she's not there, and his friend comes back and says, she's not there, I don't know where she's gone, and he's concerned about that because he was trying to be responsible with what he said, and she had disappeared. And so over the course of time, this pregnancy becomes known, and word gets back to Judah that his daughter-in-law has played the harlot, and he feels that this is a shame upon his name. Again, we're living in patriarchal ancient times. He gets very upset, 
And he gets very angry. And so he actually says to her, this child that is born by whoredom and this woman by the name of Tamar that is my daughter-in-law, bring her forth and let her be burnt. And so she appears and she says to her father-in-law through a messenger, I pray thee, whose are these? The signet, the bracelets, and the staff. And Judah acknowledges them and says, She has been more righteous than I because I gave her not to Sheila, my son, and he knew her again no more. The irony here is this. It was Judah in the story of Joseph that suggested using the blood of a kid goat to deceive Jacob, his father, into thinking that Joseph had been killed is now being deceived by Tamar with a kid goat as a point of transaction. There's a message there, and, and, and this is what it is. What goes around comes around. And what went around came around, and Tamar deceived him. She was ignored. She was marginalized. And so she took matters in her own hand, and Judah walks blindly into this, and at the end of the day, with all the stuff that transpired and maybe all the confusion that is in our mind, Judah takes responsibility and he says, she has been more righteous than I because I gave her not to Sheila, my son, and he knew her again no more. And so here is Tamar, and she is going to give birth, and she's going to give birth to two Perez and Zara. And as they are born, the significance of the ribbon and the names and all of this, right in the middle of Joseph's story, the names are what is important. We've heard the story. I introduced it to you. That's about all that we've got. We don't know anything about Perez and Zara beyond this passage of Scripture other than what we read in Matthew. This is all that we know about them. So their life, there's not enough fabric of their life for us to understand. We just have a, a name. You, you, it's hard to, uh, to create a tapestry of someone's life if all you got is a name. Many times we'll say things like, the name goes with the face or the lifestyle. Sometimes a name becomes an identity of a person, and what's connected with the name is not just the birth and the name that is given, but the life of the individual that is lived is connected to the name. Here, we don't have the fabric of their life. All we've got is their name, Perez and Zara. Perez means breach break out or break through. This is the message here this morning. His name means breakthrough. Zara means bright. The dawn or the rising of the sun or the sun rising. Now, this is very, very important. In biblical times, names had meaning and they were connected to situations. And that could either be a good thing or a negative thing. For example, if your name, because of the the wickedness that is taking place with Hophni and Phinehas, and Eli falls over backwards, 
and breaks his neck and dies because it has been reported that the Ark of the Covenant has been taken into captivity and his daughter-in-law is giving birth at the very moment that he falls over, dies, and his name becomes Ichabod. That is not a good thing because that negative thing is connected and associated for the rest of your life. So sometimes whatever your name was and the significance attached to that would have meaning for you your entire life. And in terms of these two children, this is what the scripture is trying to reveal to us is the meanings that come from their name. Perez is a breakthrough, a breach. It happens in birth. Zara is the firstborn, but there's a breakthrough because Perez, he comes out before Zara. And so there is a breakthrough. And the midwife says there is a breakthrough that has happened here. There is a breach in the normal affairs of life. This is not the way things typically happen, but there is a child that is born that is breaking breaking through everything else that is common and he's stepping out and there is a breach in that. Let me just say by way of introduction, I've already mentioned it, but there are times in our life when we need to break out of what is common and we need a breakthrough in our life that breaches us out of what is common. We can get so caught up in a rut with life and life is full of stuff and we've got responsibilities and we've got things that we're supposed to do, but every once in a while, you need to break out of everything that you're supposed to be doing and let God break you into a new season and anointing. Their names are significant. <clears throat> you see, in the normal state of affairs, the firstborn is, in fact, the sun that is rising the one that is bright, the firstborn in ancient culture, culture held all the power, held all of the prominence. And, and, and people naturally gravitated to the firstborn. This is why Jacob and Esau's story is, is so amazing because Esau had everything. He was the rising. He was the one that was in a place of prominence. And so people naturally gravitated to the firstborn because the firstborn was going to carry on the lineage. All the power, all the authority, all the control was in his hand. And, and, and th so this is what people look for. Someone that comes forth shining like the dawn of the sun with a mark of power and authority on his fist. Someone that represents power and success and authority and status and ability and talent. Every attention is upon him. All the attributes that we would pick based on human intuition and desire would go to the firstborn. And yet it seems to scripture that God overlooks many times the firstborn that has all the abilities and he looks for the one that is a breakthrough it's the world that produces it's a saw 
tall that stands above everybody and he's got the looks and he's got the stature and he's got the talent and he's got the ability and everybody looks to him and yet God's not looking at a Saul. He's looking for a David that is on the backside somewhere of a hill taking care of the sheep and when everybody else is looking for status and authority, God's looking for something different. I want to preach to you just for a few moments here today. Don't always look for what appears to be the best and the greatest because that's not how God works. God looks for what isn't insignificant and is passed over and he says, I want to use what everybody else passes by. And I want to attach significance to that. God always looks for the person of the breakthrough, not the one that we would choose. In our eyes, that would be a weaker choice. The younger, without seeming power, without success, without authority, without status, without ability, without talent. Those who seemingly don't fit the office of kingship, yet they become what everybody is looking for because God breaks through on their behalf and he raises them to a place of prominence. You say, well, I'm insignificant. I didn't come from, from, from much. I came from the bottom and my background and lineage and I don't come from a family that's got money, success, talent. That's not the point here today. The point here today, it doesn't matter where you came from or where you come from. God's looking at an opportunity to say I can elevate you I could use you praise God you got a place of prominence in the kingdom of God I know you don't feel like you measure up but don't compare yourself to somebody around you because you're significant you are powerful you can be successful because of the anointing of God in your life hallelujah praise God if you're thankful for that you need to thank God right now that God overlooks some of those that are greater more authority more power and he looks for somebody that's got a heart for God a heart for God and so there's like this plot line that's built into the scripture in which these names and this story flows throughout the Tower of Babel, human rising, rising, make a name by human ingenuity, thwart any divine judgment, and yet it crumbles to God calling Abraham and Sarah. Old in their age, yet promised to be a mighty nation. See, <laughs> this is... It's, it's Ferez and Zara. Zara is the rising. All the people, we're going to build a tower through human ingenuity and through su success and authority and control so that we will never be judged again. And it crumbles and falls because God calls Abraham and Sarah who are elderly in age and he tells them, I'm going to give you a promised child and you are going to bless the nations. How is this possible? Most people would go with a tower, but God is looking at an older man and woman and saying to them I'm going to bless you. Everybody else would have passed by Abraham and Sarah, but not God. But not God. The inheritance goes to the younger and not the older. Look at Cain and Abel 
The inheritance goes to Seth. Ishmael, human ingenuity, but it goes to Isaac. Esau, but it goes to Jacob. Reuben is the oldest, but it goes to Judah. Look at King David. There are Zaras everywhere. He's overlooked. He has seven older brothers that look impressive. His father, when Samuel comes to anoint a king, his father, oh, yeah, I've got, I've got some sons. And he, he rolls them all out. Zaras, rising. These are, these are rising people of prominence in my family. Samuel looks at all of them. As the mouthpiece of God, he looks at all the ones that would rise to prominence and success, and he said, no, this is not it. Do you have another son? Yeah, I got another son, but he's on the backside of the hill taking care of the sheep, and this ruddy young boy comes before Samuel, and Samuel says, that's the anointed king. He's going to become king. What? What does he have to offer? What abilities does he have? He's just taking care of the sheep. Oh, yes, but there's an anointing that is on his life. Hallelujah. That he's going to be able to face off against giants. Why? Because the anointing and power of God is going to raise him to a place of prominence. God always looks for the breakthrough. He looks for the breach. And so here we have the story of David and Goliath in the valley And what's fascinating is you get this forez in some of these stories. For example, in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 18, when we hear about David going before Goliath, in verse number 19, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into mine hand? And the Lord said unto David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into thine hand. And David came to Baal. Perizim. And David smote them there and said, The Lord hath broken forth upon mine enemies before me as the breach of waters. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal Perizim. Perizim is Perez. It's the same word. David says, God's going to work for me because he's going to break through. The power and the ability and the authority of the Philistines. God, God is going to be with me. I know there's adversity and I know there's struggle, but I know there's a God of the breakthrough that is going to walk through my life and he's going to help me. And so David overcomes and he calls that place, he calls it the place of Baal breakthrough, where God breaks through idolatry and difficulty. When the Ark of the Covenant was stolen, taken, and David wanted to bring it back, he gathered together all the people in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and they put it on a cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah was driving the cart, and it was starting to shake And so David and all the house were playing before the Lord on all manner of instruments. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand and took hold of it for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God smote him there because of his error and he died by the ark of God. This was 
this was instruction, very clear instruction that you were to carry the ark of God and it, would, it was supposed to be the priests and they were doing something that was not the right methodology. And David recognized he was responsible for this. He was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. The breach on Uzzah. David recognized. David recognized that God's calling me from insignificance and he's lifting me up to a place of prominence. And so every, every milestone in his life, he called things out. He called them out as, as though they were breakthroughs in his life. They were significant moments. And he recognized I am what I am because God has taken not the firstborn, but he's taken the breakthrough and he's elevated. And this seems to be the theme throughout scripture. For example, Moses can't speak. Abraham is old. Jericho's walls are too tall. The Hebrew children are under too much pressure. Daniel is no match for the lions. Gideon has little courage and a few men. See this? Jonathan and his armor bear only two guys against odds and they have to go uphill. And what we think will be powerful, the rising image of conquest, is never realized. And the breakthrough comes from what seems less but with the power of God's anointing. And this is a theme that runs through Scripture. You know what the theme is? The theme in actuality, when you look at all of it, is the gospel because Jesus preaches to us the death, the burial, and resurrection that brings salvation to us that reaches out not to the high and mighty, but reaches out to the lowly, not to the people that think they don't need God, but to the people that say, I can't make it without the anointing of God. I'm here in my struggle because I recognize on my own, I can't control things, but God can help me. And and so I'm coming before God, needing a breakthrough in my life. This becomes the gospel message. You say, you, you, you think so? Yes. First Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 9. Listen. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You know what empowers you? You know what lifts you up? You know what raises you up to sit and dwell in heavenly places? Not because of who you are. Not because of the family you were born into. Not because of your money. Not because money or lack of money or anything else. What raises you up is the power and the anointing of God and the strength of God that says the world may look at you as insignificant, but God sees you as something that is great. If 
God's done great things in your life, we need to praise him in the house of God today. If God has elevated you, given to you a sound mind, you've got the peace of God and the comfort of God and the strength of God. You ought to worship God in the house of God today. I may look insignificant through the world's eyes, but I'm significant in God's eyes. Hallelujah. Come on, let's clap our hands and thank the Lord. This is what the church is. Go ahead and let the world make fun of the church. It's not insignificant in God's eyes. It may not measure up to Hollywood. It may not measure up to Washington, D.C. It may not measure up to the politics in the world, but the church is the apple of God's eye because he's looking for people that seem insignificant, but he's making something out of them. And he's developing them and he's building them. Hey, Scott, I'm concluding. Here this morning, musicians, you can come. We read in Matthew chapter 1 the direct descendants of Jesus. There's only one, though, in Matthew's genealogy that is not a direct descendant of Jesus. Guess who it is? Zara is mentioned. Verse number three, Judah begat Perez and Zara. You see that? He's mentioned... And as a direct descendant, the firstborn would have to be mentioned next. And what happens next is it says, and Perez begat Ezra. The only one that is not a direct descendant in the genealogy of Matthew is Perez. Who is he? He's the breakthrough. He's the breach. Jesus doesn't come like the one for which the world is looking. He becomes the word that was made flesh. He has humble origins. <laughs> He's in his own country, he can't do a whole lot because what do they say? What do they say about him? Isn't he just a carpenter's son? He just a carpenter's son. They don't see the miracles. They don't see what he's doing. They don't see his power and authority when he is teaching. Everybody else sees it, but the people close to him don't see it. He's just a carpenter. Because he's not coming like what we're looking for, the rising. We're looking for a king that will come and throw off Roman rule and authority. Not a guy that's riding in Jerusalem on a donkey. But man, does Jesus ever break through? What does he break through? Well, he takes the key to death, hell, and the grave, and he breaks through those things. He breaks through sin and domination and control and dysfunction. Jesus is the king of the breakthrough 
Man, I'm preaching here in the house of God tonight. If you're looking for a king that is a king of the breakthrough, you come to the right place because Jesus can break through every addiction, every sin, every difficulty, every dysfunction. Jesus can break through every darkness, every pain, every bit of suffering. Can I get a witness in the house of God here today? If you're weak, Jesus is the breakthrough that you need. If healing is what you need, Jesus is the God of the breakthrough. Praise God. As we stand together, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26 says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised. God hath chosen things which are not to bring to not things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. The things that the world despises, God chooses. I said the things that the world does. See, the world will the world will build you up real fast. Great marketing campaign. Build you up real fast and then rip the carpet out from underneath you. Leave you with addictions and all kinds of difficulties and scars. And at the very, very bottom. Because ultimately, the world's narrative is an illusion. And it is a lie. And when everybody else would have left you on the curb, in the gutter, walked on by you, the God of the breakthrough says, no, I'll take what the world despises. I'll take a David that is despised by his very own father and I'll make him a king that is a mighty king and a powerful king I'll take what is despised and I'll use it for God's glory what does he do he takes 12 disciples he takes situations like Paul and Silas in jail and the things that would be despised by some he uses those things for a breakthrough Zechariah chapter 4 and verse number 6. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. I've come here today to tell you the answer is not in what you think is powerful or what you think is the rising, but it is in the breakthrough. When everything is arrayed against you, you need a breakthrough. When the storm is, is, is against you, you need a breakthrough. When the walls are too high and your back is against the wall, there is a God of the breakthrough. When the prison cell has you trapped and sin is causing you to live among the tombs, there is a breakthrough. When you've spent all the you've had and you're still sick there is a breakthrough which you, when you can't get to where you need to and it seems like nobody will help you when you have nothing to sustain you when demonic oppression seems to steer you toward the tombs when you think God is finished he saves the best for last and he reveals his power and his ability and he heals you as you make your way through the press hallelujah he touches you
It's got every once in a while we need a breakthrough. We need a breakout. God, God. You know, life is interesting. The more, the older I get, the more I'm realizing that every stage of life has challenges. And it grates on my nerves a little bit when old guys like me, I'm using myself so I don't offend anybody, old guys like me tell younger generations that their struggle and they need to be lined out and this is what they need to be doing and that's what they need to do and yada, 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 yada and these young people and that becomes the focus. Listen, you're going to have problems as a child, a young person, a young adult, married life and then you're really going to face some challenges when you get elderly. So the last people trying to judge should probably be somebody like me looking down on somebody that's generations below me. I should be the one that is supporting them and encouraging them and building them up and saying, hey, I know what you're going through because I was there, but I'm still here in the house of God, still loving God, and so can you, so fight on. I don't have all the answers. I, I, you know, that's awesome preaching. Somebody needs to put your hands together, clap your hands, and thank God. That's, that's amazing preaching right there. You can make it. You can do it. How can you do it? Because God has broke through in my life, every stage of life. And so I'm here to be a representative and example to you just so that you know. Hallelujah. I was at the bottom. I made stupid mistakes. I said things I shouldn't have said. I got involved in stuff I shouldn't have been involved in. But somehow God broke me out of those situations. I got in situations where I was bored and apathetic. But revival came to my spirit. And if God can do it for me, he can do it for you. So Stay plugged in. Stay faithful. Praise God. I, I know you're not here for a, a marital counseling. But if you want your marriage to thrive, you, you're going to have to work at it. You know what that's like, that engagement? Well, first of all, you know, when you catch your eye and you realize, ooh, there's something there. There's a spark there. Right? Then all of a sudden there's a conversation that leads into something a little deeper. And, and then there's the engagement. And then there's the honeymoon and marriage. And you're, you're, you are operating on all these emotions, man, that have got you flying high. That lasts for about two years. That's what they say, about two years. The honeymoon phase is about two years. This is why in Hollywood, relationships last about two years because they're operating on an emotion or a feeling. And then when the feeling is not there, they think they need to check out because they don't feel it. Well, guess what? If you're going to go deeper into intimacy, you're going to have to work at that. You got to do that. Hey, listen up, dudes. If you courted her, loved her, man, you were the man of the hour. And then after two years, you become this different guy. What happened to you? Hello, ladies. I got, I got an amen for my wife and nobody else. Don't stop being the person that courted her. Keep courting her. You know why? Because after two years, you're going to find out stuff, and then 
there's careers and there's jobs and there's this and there's that. You got to do this and you got to do that. And then all of a sudden children come along and now we've got children. Our focus on children and then that's a whole nother set of circumstances. And now we're working and parenting. We're doing all this stuff and school and education all this and, and then and, and then life just man it starts doing this kind of number and then pretty soon if you're not careful you can get in a you can get in a rut you could be living in the same house but you're so far apart you're doing everything you're supposed to be doing you're taking care of all the responsibilities but you haven't done the job of continuing the process of courtship guess what tell us all right baby I'll tell you got to keep dating her. Well, why do I need to do that? I'm married. You got to keep telling her, I love you. Why did I told her I loved her on our wedding day? That's all. I it's a constant process. I've been married 30 years. You know what? I'm still I'm taking my wife on dates. You better believe it. Yeah, but what about the family? The family can take a back seat for a while. Somebody else can babysit them because we got something important going on. And what we've got is going to benefit the family. You can, you can get spiritually. Now that, I mean. Let's get off the relationship stuff. Let's, let's move to the spiritual stuff, okay? But it is true. It is very true. You say, well, pastor, are you going to be 65 and still taking her on dates? Absolutely. You better believe it. I'll be taking her out of town to a nice restaurant, a nice place, and nice things. You know why? Because I love her, and I don't want to get stuck in a rut. You're not careful, you get stuck relationally in a rut. And that's not a good place to be. Spiritually, life, life looks so much like so many connections to spiritually. Spiritually, come to church, that's what I do, come to church, do this, step in. I'm, I'm going through the motions. Did you know you can even do the same thing in ministry? You can be so focused on going here and saying, yeah, I got this meeting. I got to talk about this. Got to go over here. I'm busy in the kingdom of God, but I'm getting farther and farther and farther away from God. And at some point, there has to be a breakthrough where God brings to my attention, look, you're doing all the things in the kingdom because you're so busy, and yet we're so far apart. You need a breakthrough to get out of that phase that you're in. You need a revival. A lot of times we, we refer to revival. It's a breakthrough. It's, it's realigning some things and letting God to step in. I don't know where you are here today. I just felt like the need to come and preach to you. That if you're in that place where it feels like you're just going through the motions, I want to encourage you in the house of God today. Let God be the king of the breakthrough. Reveal these things to me that maybe I've overlooked and I'm not seeing. Help me to see them again. I know I'm spending a lot of time on this part, but this is really where the rubber meets the road. You know what's significant about when you're growing up, you're going to places that just mesmerize you, and then at some point you get jaded, like Disneyland. Like when you were young and you went to Disneyland, you're like, wow, this is the greatest place on the earth. And you're just amazed by it. And then you get a little older and you go back and you're like, this is what a small world is? Cardboard cutouts? wonky looking things going back and forth. Why, why did I think this was so significant? Right? You get jaded. I'm paying $15 for a Coke? This is stupid. This is dumb. 
right? And then you go with somebody that's never been before, like a grandchild. Or you take some children that have ne they've never experienced that. And now you're seeing it through their eyes. And now all of a sudden you're like, man, this is a great place, isn't it? Because they're so excited. About it. And then at some point, you're going to get a little jaded because they're going to, and, and then life is like that. There are breakthrough moments in which the things that you thought were insignificant, when you see it through someone else's eyes, you realize, man, I just got another uplift because now I, I've overlooked some things. I've overlooked some things and I've got stuck in a rut and now God is breaking me out of that through these relationships and I'm seeing things differently. That's how it has to be spiritually. You can't get jaded when you come into the house of God and say, well, that's just another baptism. No, heaven rejoices when one person is baptized in Jesus' name. Oh, that's just somebody getting the Holy Ghost. No, that's a powerful thing. Hallelujah. Let God break us out of, of the situations where we get jaded and apathetic and God break through the things that seem so insignificant and elevate those things so that we can see you're doing something. God works through the breakthrough. Amen. Is it prepared to sing here? Tonight, we, we need to, while we're standing right where we are, we need to pray that God would break us out of some things. Amen. Go through everything in your mind, every area where you may feel like you are stuck and say, God, I need your help. I need your direction. I need you to break me out of some of these areas so that I, I experience life and life more abundantly. Hallelujah. You have won the victory. Hallelujah, you have won it all for me. Thank you, Jesus. Death could not hold you down. Woo. You are, you are the risen King. Thank you, Lord. Seated in majesty. Thank you, Lord. You are the risen
doing something, and that is we've made a divine appointment with the altar every service. So we're going to conclude today around this altar. If you'd step out of the pew where you are, walk up to this front. Amen. We're going to pray a final prayer today. Amen. Of God's anointing, his breakthrough, his goodness. If you're praying about stuff or you feel like, you know what, Pastor, you're talking about my situation. Amen. You're talking about my circumstances. Hallelujah. We're going to pray together. We're going to pray together. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You're thankful that God called you out of insignificance and brought you a place to prominence. 